0: Welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast looking at how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. I'm Christina Patterson, I'm a writer, broadcaster and coach, and today I'm really delighted to welcome Arifa Akbar, Chief Theatre Critic of The Guardian and author of Consumed, which has just been shortlisted for the Costa Biography Award. Arifa has been arts correspondent and literary editor of The Independent, which is where I met her. She's written for newspapers and magazines ranging from The Observer to the FT and is a trustee of the Orwell Foundation and English Pen. In this podcast, she talks about the role of instinct in our careers, the power of the deadline, and her journey from childhood poverty to one of the most powerful roles in arts journalism. Well, hello, Arifa, and welcome to The Art of Work.
1: Hello, so lovely to be here, Christina. Well, as you know,
0: I adored your memoir, Consumed, would you say it's the thing you're proudest of in your career so far? God
1: you've hit me with a hard one straight away. <laughs> <laughs> God, it's really hard, Christina. Um has it been the thing I'm most proud of? No. Really? I don't think I how interesting. I think it's the thing I learned so much from. God I've never asked myself what is what is the thing I've been proudest of. Um and and I don't know why I haven't asked myself that. I have been um, in awe of of certain things that have happened to me. And I describe them, you know, I think this is a misdescription. I describe them as massive pieces of luck, as, you know, gifts being given to me. I think this is what some of us do, and you know maybe particularly women. we do this to ourselves, so we we almost refuse to acknowledge there's hard graft, maybe some planning um and you know pride that all that that has gone into those those moments and so i refuse i think I refuse to feel sort of proud, which is just very silly i think and and it's denial to certain to a certain degree um It's one of the things that I found the hardest to do. Uh, And it's one of the things that I am, yeah, I'm pleased it's in the world. And maybe I'm proud. I'm very proud it's in the world. It's something that I think is a thing um, created by myself and my sister. Mm. So it's got great meaning to it. It's one of the best things that I think I've achieved.
0: Well, I think it's absolutely wonderful and uh, not because I want this to be a mutual appreciation society <laughs> and not because you're also my friend. And as you know, I've been a critic for 30 years mm. and I don't say things about books that I don't believe because I would trash my professional reputation mm. straight away. And I've just been through your book. I've I've read it properly twice and I reread huge chunks of it for this podcast. And I do think it's it's a genuinely a really remarkable uh, textured, multi-layered and incredibly moving and searingly honest yeah. work. And I want, for the sake of the listeners, um, could you please tell us a bit about the genesis of the book yeah. and what finally compelled you, well I shouldn't really say finally because it wasn't that long after, but what compelled mm. you to write it?
1: Yeah, well it was, I, I this book was published, you know, almost well, to the day, um, five years since my sister's death. My sister died in 2016. She'd been shuttling in and out of... an E Ward in a leading North London hospital, the Royal Free, and they couldn't find what was wrong with her. She'd had one admission where she had seemed to get better, but actually they just gave her steroids and she she went home, felt immediately much worse. She was readmitted. They still didn't know what was wrong. We were told she'd had a massive brain hemorrhage. We were called in and we sat in this little side room. And a doctor said we we may not really be able to name what killed her. It was absolutely unbelievable in this day and age, in such an impressive hospital, to be told that. And only after she'd effectively died, because we were told there was no coming back from that hem- hemorrhage, um, it, you know, the following day they said actually what this was all along was TB, tuberculosis. Uh, you know, uh, uh, a malaise from the eighteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century that I naively thought had vanished, and certainly from the Western world, and um, it hadn't at all. What what then happened at the hospital, for me, was a really unhappy and quite a traumatic experience in talking to the doctors, and really not getting enough answers to make peace with what had, the shock of what had happened. Uh, the news that my sister had died of undiagnosed TB—it was—it was diagnosed far too late to do anything about after she'd had a fatal hemorrhage. Um, that was so unsatisfactory at a hospital like that. I was appalled, enraged, confused. I carried on feeling those things even as I was discussing what had gone wrong with the doctors i couldn't really get answers i couldn't get paperwork for weeks and weeks afterwards um, none of that made me want to sit down and write my sister's story about her life and death in fact actually what i how i dealt with grief or what grief did to me was make me kind of numb inarticulate very ineloquent um, you know not at all you know driven to poetry as some people thought I would be which I felt felt quite angry about there was nothing poetic in that experience there was nothing um that I felt was of any value in in that first rush of grief and I'd also read the most astonishing grief memoirs you know I too like you have been a critic um for a very long time and a literary editor and in that job I saw how people mind you know their grief very deeply and and uh, managed to write the most profound and the most poetic books about grief and about loss and and um, I couldn't manage that and at that point I knew I couldn't manage that I didn't want to I'm quite private I've you know I've I began journalism as a news reporter and uh, in as a news reporter I was told never to uh insert myself in a news story and that stayed with me that journalistic new, news journalistic tenant stayed with me even when I became an arts journalist and a literary journalist I sort of felt that I was the ears and eyes of 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 the world but there was something indulgent in bringing in inserting myself and my experiences into um the pieces that i wrote and for all those reasons i thought well i'm not going to this i would i didn't think of writing a family memoir or or a memoir about my sister um it was a gradual sort of realization that i may be able to write something um over the next couple of years one of the reasons One of the things that drove me to it was was looking more... It sounds like a funny old reason to to, to write such an intimate story and such an intimate sort of confession about my family, early family life, which was dysfunctional, it was unhappy, it was deeply loving, but it was very complicated and my very thorny, you know, sisterhood with Fauzi and my sister. All of those things were so personal and actually slightly filled me with... um, uh, just a horror to to put that out in the world. Uh but it I was so stunned by the tuberculosis diagnosis that I began to read around TB, the history of it, the cultural history of it. Uh it's got it had such a powerful mythology around it and such powerful lies around it in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was sort of it, it was came with its own magical powers, it came with its own allure. All of these things I found utterly fascinating. Scientifically it can be really slippery, which is one of the reasons that my sister wasn't diagnosed. So it had the kind of mystique around it that made me want to read more and more. And the more I looked at TB medically and culturally, the more I thought, hang on a minute, do I actually want to write something about my sister's story, but tying it to something much bigger than the family story? Because that, that, in a way, gets around my aversion to just simply writing about me, me, me. Mm. And it makes... It, it ties together. Well, I mean, it... I mean, what what's interesting is out of
0: all that complexity, you did create. You have created art, and... Mm. And I would say it's genuinely original, which very few books are. The way that you have pieced together the cultural history and the art and the opera and the visual art and the embroidery, it's, in my view, enchanting, actually, really enchanting. But one of the things that really surprised me in the book and in your childhood, actually, was given that you came from two Pakistanis who immigrated to this country great poverty which I want to talk to you about shortly not many books in the house not much sense of a voracious appetite for reading and yet the ferocity of the intellectual curiosity Mm. you and your sister shared and the kinds of books you were reading Mm. as teenagers I found really astonishing that sense of um, art culture
1: criticism literary criticism Kind of feeding the soul, where did that come mm. from? God, that's a hard one. I think it's probably that might be came from my mother's side because she's from such an educated family where you know the women are emphatically out there working in Pakistan. Her own mother was a teacher that she's come from a really very uh, curious an educated culture um they i don't think But like, your mother didn't read much did she or did she She read a lot in Urdu she came with her own Urdu oh, did books. she Okay. She just wasn't she didn't know the English canon no. you know we didn't have jane austen in the house because uh, Why she would you? Yeah well she didn't read in English she read a lot of poetry in in, right. in Urdu and Persian uh, she came with education in you know, a highly educated family and um she wasn't sent to university because her father was a total aberration in the family. Even though his own wife, my grandmother, my my mother's mother, was a teacher for her entire life, he was a wealthy businessman. He had this idea that his daughters should were these delicate flowers. He named them after flowers, and he he thought that they were too delicate to to go off to To be part of the world, to be working women, which is what all the other women in his family were, um, and that he wanted them to have this sort of really quite in, in, indulged, uh, um, rarefied life as wives who could just... Loll around, I think. I Definitely. lost in heroines, in a sense. Exactly, and uh, and my mother did come to. I remember this very clearly when I was, when we were both little girls, my sister and I. She kept repeating that story, and you know, through a sort of gritted teeth, but with a smile, she would she would tell us that story again and again. How really, it was a story about how she was refused an education. Yes. She was furious, but she refused to kind of clearly say and I'm raging about this towards my father and her own the one of the other sisters did have get an art actually she was an artist and got an art degree Mm. because because she insisted they insisted the little one the youngest one should her her brothers and a a nuclear physicist who's now Who in Canada? Who's who's lived a whole life as a nuclear f- physicist in Canada? The entire family were incredibly artistic, um, and her side of the family, you know, my my father's brothers were all incredibly wealthy, incredibly mm. achieved in in America. So there, there's a general background of of highly educated aunts, uncles, grandparents. We come to the the um, the UK as and we become dispossessed and you know we live in a squat and we have zero money and we have you know parents who haven't gotten education i remember that when i think when people emigrated in the 60s and 70s and perhaps now but more so then even if they came with degrees and qualifications your class sort of became very complicated mm. because you might come as a nuclear scientist from Iran or from Pakistan. But here, you're you're somebody with a suitcase of very little cash. And I'm not sure how much your degree counts here. So although we weren't that, we came without the degrees we were very confused in terms of class because mm. we you know we were housed in a in a council estate and and it was really welcoming actually we had a lot of post-war families who were just very warm towards us they did see us as oddities but they were warm and welcoming and this was the 1970s, which generally the UK was not warm and welcoming, mm. but this housing state this council state was. But we realised we were a little bit different. And I think children intuit things. We, intu- we intuited that we came from a family that liked um, to read, that was educated. My, my, my mother um, very overtly brought those ideals along with her. Mm. There was no question that we wouldn't be curious educationally mm. that we wouldn't read that we wouldn't do well educationally she, she just they didn't know how we were going to do this but they insisted that we were going to have professions that we were going to have glittering careers and we were for good or bad my sister and i were in a way steered away from marriage steered away from the kitchen steered away from every any kind of traditional uh, feminine role by a woman who who was the archetypal housewife at home, yes. the South Asian mother yes. at home. So there was lots of irony there. Absolutely. And that's why, and I remember we were brought up in, you know, North London, Primrose Hill, and we were taken to Primrose Hill Library when, you know, the minute we joined them, every Tuesday we'd go to the library. And from there on in, we started reading. And it, it was who knows who drew us to those those texts that I still go to now, you know, all the sort of Margaret Atwoods and whatever else, and um, which we began reading, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Again, you know, all my tastes were shaped by my sister, who were bringing, two years older than me. She was bringing home um, the novels that I would then go on to read at university, but she was introducing me to everybody from Chaucer to Atwood and, and spending hours um bubbling over with enthusiasm telling me the stories of macbeth of of the edible woman of everything else that that i then read because she told me to and i think i was uh, probably encountering, you know, literature that was two years older for yes. two, because of my older sister yes. making that impression on me. But also because the libraries were rich with these books, you know, that we had libraries with, do you remember the Virago classics? Mm. And I remember, you know, there were walls of them, walls of these books. We were also reading um, pulpy stuff. Harold Robbins who we were reading Mills and Boone all the romances Lace everything else the, the fact is we were sucking up you know the low and the high so we were reading books across the range and I think we were deciding where where our passion lay did you ever read Mary Stewart no, yeah. that's oh what I God, did. I loved it. So I used to
0: save up my pocket money to buy her. There were these romances, romantic oh,
1: thrillers. I mean, maybe I, just... I had, or or things like flowers in the attic. Yes. I forget who, you know, all these kind of slightly mushy yes. things that we were um, absolutely kind of uh, absorbing all of it, and we were watching everything on telly I mean TV in the 70s and 80s was fabulous yeah we, and that's, that's the Dennis only time in my life I've watched loads of telly. television and I was little and I was watching Beckett I was watching um, Dennis Potter you know I was watching really fabulous stuff mm. and we were getting really really bad education at school because really? it was in the late 70s and 80s where Our schools in North London, our secondary school in North London, was full of supply teachers. There were a lot of strikes, teacher strikes, so it was really disrupted. I remember again and again, the school in itself was—it seems terrible to think about it now—but it was, um, it was asking. I I remember again and again, we were told that we didn't necessarily need to aim high. We went to a girls' school, an all-girls school. And again and again we were we were being taught that, you know, getting A's and Bs and Cs may not be the thing that we aim for. And it and it was a it's a terrible thing to tell school children it's so interesting. to aim I, low. It's
0: so interesting. I went to a, a grammar school that turned comprehensive And we weren't told that, though I certainly never remember getting any great sense of burning ambition from my school. But what did happen was I had a group of close friends and we were very competitive with each other. And that and my parents didn't pressurise us in any way at all. They didn't care whether we... I, mean, my, my, I remember when I got a school report in primary school and my mother the only time my mother really praised me for a report was a phrase from one of the teachers that said, Sense, Christina is sensitive to the needs of others and that was the only thing <laughs> oh, my parents sort of praised me for. Which they is a lovely thing
1: to be praised. It is a, a lovely thing. For. It is a lovely thing. But it was
0: slightly irritating to get all these A's and it was like, you know, yeah, well done darling but you know, <laughs> we didn't really feature. So it's interesting, isn't it, that we
1: both weren't in these
0: because with I know, I know school. people who work, you know went to private right. schools and had yes. a completely
1: different yeah. educational yeah. experience, and pushed to do well, and 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 you know, with having the right text put under their nose and things like that. Mm. But I think there's some sort of the, the, this discovery of books and stories and culture has lived with me because I was never. Uh, pressured I was I I remember receiving a huge amount of pressure at home um it was a sort of an existential thing because it had no practical basis so my both my parents would sit us down and say so sit the three of us down my brother my sister and I and say so what is it you'd like to be what 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 kind of um, job what kind of profession would you like to have and we all had to choose and I remember I started saying that I wanted to be a teacher and I remember vaguely that my brother started saying he wanted to be an architect but you know we were living on a poverty line Mm. and we were being asked to um, imagine big lives for ourselves and I think there's great power in that I also think there's a great power in letting in, in, in giving a message out to a young girl or boy or whatever that you know, to go out there and to to think big and to have a big adventurous life, but not particularly directing them as to Mm. what to read or how to get Mm. there. And it's very alarming for a child to actually be left with that responsibility, but there's freedom in that. So Mm. I then was, I was sort of given permission to be anything as long as I, so I could follow my nose, and I did. I followed my nose because my sister followed her nose and was always brilliant at art and drawing and painting. I mean, utterly talented mm. from a very brilliant. young age. I've been to one of her exhibitions. The exhibition
0: yes, you put UK, on after she died, I'd, and just
1: stunning, stunning, and very original. and She had things to say, as her embroidery teacher said. She had things to say in her art. And um, and I followed my nose to literature, you know, mm. to books. And I was a slightly introverted sort of character. Um, I wasn't anywhere near as sociable as my sister. I was just quite shy right up to when I graduated from university. I was a naturally shy and, and shy listener, you know. I'm very different now because I think I forced myself into extrovertism, you know. And maybe my job sort of demanded that of me. But um, books suited me and... So I was given the freedom to really be quite instinctive with the thing that I was going to focus on. And that's carried on through the world of work because I've never really thought, well, I'm supposed to be this or I'm supposed to be that. But what I have done is a very instinctively be sort of responded to whatever's come to me. Mm. And then if I'm excited by it, I'll I'll approach it with so much excitement and enthusiasm and it'll be genuine and I think that served me really well for a path, a career path, by not plotting it out um, but responding. Do you know, I think that's about the best
0: career advice one could give because um, I think, and I think your parents, in a way surprisingly, were very wise because Mm. Your father, you know, he I think he would worked as a sales rep for Pan Am and at yeah. Italia or something and then he worked Itinerant as a conductor on British Rail for most of his And, and was yeah. very uh unambitious but contented which in many ways I think is a, is a great trait
1: to yes. have in life.
0: And I think you've said in the book that you inherited that sense yes. of easy contentment whereas your mother had this kind of burning sense that nothing was ever quite good enough. Yes. And I think that's very interesting but I think and so many south asian immigrants pressurize their children into you've got to be an accountant you've got to be a dentist you've got to be an it whatever doctor Mm. whatever and it's fascinating that you were given that freedom Mm. and also that you were kind of essentially told to follow your nose because Mm. i think so much career advice is you know, kind of sit in a room and see what appeals to you, follow your passion. And passions don't materialise out of nothing. And
1: I think generally speaking, you have to try things and then see where the energy is. Absolutely. And this is what I think I've sort of done. This is why I, I, um, I'm i really, I think if I, I, I do think I've had a, you know, I think I've had successes in my career um, by running towards things that, feel good and feel right embracing all the things that that I that's feel good to me and sometimes you know taking on the stuff that I sort of I'm really in two minds about if a job comes my way if I'm asked to do something and I sort of know instinctively or I know Mm. on some level I'm really i'm I'm confused about it which normally means this is not for me yes. but i've taken it on and i've done it for a while and what's so good about sort of being in touch with your instincts and your passions is you know quite quickly it's not right yeah so you don't stay confused for long and i've and i've sort of had to I've, I've dumped those jobs really quickly yeah i think
0: that's so interesting i i have recently been on a committee for um housing association actually Mm. and i was on the board before and i enjoyed that and then i was on a committee and wasn't hugely enjoying it and i got sent an email saying oh would you please fill out these self-appraisal forms and I just thought, no, no, I won't. <laughs> so I just sent an email resigning because I thought I really can't. Fantastic. I really can't face it. Yeah. And that was in a way unwise because I lose some regular income that I, you know, would would. It's nice to have, but, mm. um, but I, I don't know. I think generally speaking, you should only do work if your heart is in it.
1: Absolutely. So I remember until we both, you and I, worked at the Independent. That's where we met. That's where we became friends. Uh, you left before I did. A few years before I did, I left in 2016 when the paper shut its print section and I remember I'd been there for 15 years and I was really full of fear about my future and I thought my um, wonderful adventurous life as a journalist would be over when the paper was over, when the print paper was over. I was sure of it. And I remember telling people, I remember telling you, I remember telling all my close friends, and I t- then I remember telling the wider circle of, of people, because you have to announce this this thing that's go- that's happening to you, mm. to my contacts, to all the book contacts I was a literary editor then. And I remember sending an email to Ali Smith, the, the amazing, warm-hearted mm. um, uh, uh, author, that I'd sort of on and off... Uh, been in contact with i'm not quite sure why i felt i had to tell announce this to ali smith but i did and she sent me the warmest and wisest email back and um she wasn't at all it it didn't project anxiety or fear for me and she said um she talked about doors opening and i think those doors i really needed to hear that Mm. And even though I didn't quite believe that at the age of how old was I, 43, you know, and I, um, having been institutionalised really by working on the same paper for so long, I just didn't believe in doors opening. And they did open. It took a while, but they did open. And what I think is interesting about doors opening is, is which doors you choose to walk through, which doors you feel you know you can shut you don't have to walk through an open door it's it's interesting mm-hmm. the open door thing mm-hmm. it's whether you recognize a door opening you know it's not as simple as doors open or or they don't um how you make them open yes you know um which direction you want to go to which door you want to you know stand at the foot of so it it was interesting really wonderful to get that email and and the journey from 2016 To now, has been really, really educational for me. In a way, much more informative than at the beginning of my career. I've had a very linear journey. I had had a very linear journey up till twenty sixteen. I had done an English literature degree. I'd then done a masters. I'd done very well at the masters. I was very um, attuned to, you know, academia. That's what. I'd sort of reached for. That's what I'd wanted to do, I thought, in my life. But towards the end of my master's uh, and and at, when I was doing my master's in, in gender and philosophy and, you know, it was um, all very highfalutin, I, um, you know, the, the course professor said you should absolutely sign up to a PhD and that's what I was going to do. And then I just began to have panic attacks and feel very lonely in libraries and question whether the kind of research and writing that I was going to do in the life in academia, what that meant, what was its value, was I suited, was I in a fit sort of emotional and mental state, actually? And I realised I wasn't. I realised it could have been fabulous but I just thought I couldn't do it then it's very interesting because you wrote that I only read
0: um, yesterday that piece you wrote in the Guardian a few weeks ago about abandoning the thought of a PhD and the sense of liberation that came with it and essentially fleeing what you knew would be a sense of kind of immobilizing loneliness yeah and it's interesting because I I was kind of drifting into an academic career as well I did and was doing an MA and then realized that sitting at home reading George Eliot on my own, although, you know, one would kill now to yeah. be paid to do that, <laughs> yes. essentially by the taxpayer. Um, I I just thought, no, I, I can't do it. It made me too lonely and yeah. miserable. And yeah. actually, it's only, you know, I do now sit at home on my own as, as a freelance writer and various other things, But um, I think you need to know yourself well enough to be able to cope with that.
1: Absolutely. And also when things happen to you are important. And perhaps, you know, both of us are happy to do that now after experiencing all that we have. But, you know, really in our early 20s Mm. and and I did, I did, you know, I it was I considered it a failure then you know I got this distinction my masters I felt that I'd failed at the thing that I'd set my I thought that was my passion you see Mm. Uh, you know because we'd been allowed to figure our passions out and I thought that that I'd somehow failed with um you know really um going towards a thing that I loved but Mm. I realized what I'd loved was books reading writing but also people Mm, and in academia that's not something I encountered it was it was um devoid of human contact and and just because I'd done journalism at university a friend said well why don't you go and do a course and I did and I think it changed everything and I would love which course did you do I I don't think I did the Trinity Mirror course which is a Trinity Trinity Mirror was a set of regional newspapers, past the Mirror Group, and I went off to Newcastle and I did a three-month course, and I got a, re- a job in one of the in the region straight mm. afterwards. It was uh, at the Middlesbrough Evening Gazette, and I went on to, you know, the Journal in Newcastle, the Northern Echo in Darlington, and those were the three and a half years. You know, such exciting years, journalism, and it was news journalism uh, uh, along with features. And I just realised it was a way to experience the world. Um, I loved, actually, I came to love the adrenalised, you know, daily deadline. And it, it, in some ways, it tempered the really dangerous perfectionist in me, because you can't be a perfectionist when yes, you're banging with, out poppy.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I do think the, I mean, the trouble is that there's nothing like the discipline of a daily deadline, but the downside of journalists it's quite hard to do anything without one
1: well this is the problem that then I don't know if you had it with your writing your books but I certainly had it with writing mine because unless I'm given a deadline unless it's absolutely real me too and and it, don't you find that frustrating in a way because you always imagine if you had more time it could be better <laughs>
0: yes I, I think that's I think often the exact opposite is true actually I think the more yeah. time you have the harder it is to get that concentrated burst of energy yeah. with, with both my books um, the deadline in the end was quite tight uh, because I started quite late and then I yes. had to kind of gallop through them but I don't think I could have done them any other way
1: well thank so, you but I let's, think let's that's move the, off my yeah, that's the journalist and <laughs> both of us I think yes. that you do yeah. need a deadline but actually what's amazing is that as journalists you keep your nerve and your focus, even with that very tight yes, deadline. Yes, yes.
0: But, but I find it much harder for things that are not, not sort of deadline ridden in yeah. quite the same way. Yeah. Tell me from your time at the Indie, which, mm. which what did you like most and what did you like least? And which roles did you like most? And which roles did you like least?
1: There were such ironies in what I liked most and least because I, I began as a news reporter because that's the job I got. I was very grateful to have that job because I did a, I learned loads about how to be a, a rigorous journalist and I also was sent on big important stories that became really you know important for me to do in terms of my identity so I was I joined um a few weeks after 9/11 I did a lot of you know st- stuff about the Afghan and Muslim communities in the UK, you know, in the first few of my job. I covered the uh, London bombing. I went both in, you know, London and then in Leeds, where the bombers lived. Um, I, you know, I went to cover the Kashmir earthquake. I did, and because the Indy was quite a small you know national newspaper we got didn't we we got to do so much stuff and mm. i felt that i was sometimes thrown in the deep end so with news i was doing massive stuff that i wouldn't have done on another bigger newspaper because we were small and and there was such a sense of achievement mm. and there were such steep learning curves but and I and I have and I'll say it that I wasn't bad at new, I wasn't bad at a certain kind of news story because people speak to me and maybe it's because I'm unassuming. I think not bad is not really a phrase. <laughs> is it? <laughs> but I, I really um, I, I excelled at news and the more I excelled, the more I didn't want to be on news mm. because what I loved about news was people and receiving those stories and the honour of doing those stories, you know, covering those stories properly and well and and thoroughly. Um, But I didn't like its unpredictable, you know, the fact that I could be sent to another part of the country, another part of the world on a phone call, its unsociable hours, its unrelenting um, nature that it, it was, you know, some people love and become addicted to its unpredictability its compulsiveness its speed and I I became worn down and I also but I would have managed all of those things because it is joyous to get you know an exclusive story to chase a story to investigate and just do something you're really proud of um, and tell the world something new or something you know hidden so I, I liked those things but I hated the formula of a news story and, and, and what I was reminded of was writing and the fact that I had loved the art of writing and pushing myself to write better. And, and I couldn't do that in a news story. Mm. I, I I think it's really hard to do that with news. And so I still started angling to get off news and I just couldn't because, you know, I was able to do it mm. quite yes. naturally. Yes, the, the, the problem with the competence... It, exa- so, so in a way, you're trapped by your own skills, yes. you know, by your own ability in that field. And so, for ages, I became I became disgruntled on news, um, and I thought, how am I going to solve this? And I couldn't. And it was only really through um, the arts correspondent on the news on the news side left, and I got given her brief. God knows why. Maybe they thought that they sort of somebody wise realized I loved the arts. And I got made, you know, first an arts writer and then an arts correspondent. And that helped me. I was still writing in a new a formulaic way, but I was closer to the arts. It sort of felt, felt like a return in a way. Mm-hmm. At first, I'd run away from them, you know, following my degree in the master's. I'd run away from... Um, that for something grittier and more real involving real people and then there I was you know really happy to be receiving this arts brief because I could re-encounter a thing that I loved the most Mm. and then I did you know this arts job and again I started to feel exactly the same frustrations in, in the writing side of things and I think I had ambitions to write in a bigger way I wouldn't even say I don't think I would have said I was confident enough to say I I want to write books I don't think I would have uh, dared to voice it to myself but but I did want to write in bigger ways than you know a 600 word news story even if it was an arts news story so my the break came when you know I became a deputy on the books desk and I started reading books and I started writing in a very different way. I was being allowed to write in um, in a way that didn't have the same street jacket as mm-hmm. news writing. And from there on in, I felt like I was much more in my element. And um, really, I started focusing on my sentences and my, my feature writing style and my interviews and, and really thinking deeper. Um, and for the first time in in my career writing personal pieces which felt like a transgression but it also felt like a liberation yes and how to write those things you don't have to be indulgent you can really be honest you can be unsentimental you can be um, quite brutal about yourself and you know about what you're writing and I think I tried to take that to my book. Well I wanted to ask you I mean your book is searingly honest
0: not but not just about yourself about I was going to say every member of your family your brother doesn't really feature but but, um, in terms of your your parents and your sister and your father was for whatever complex reasons Mm. and it's not possible to get to the bottom of those reasons um gratuitously cruel and abusive not well I was going to say not physically abusive, but actually it sounds like occasion he was physically Occasionally abusive. He was, yeah. But more emotionally yeah. abusive to her. I'm very rejecting to my towards my sister. And he is alive, but he has dementia. Mm. Your mother is alive, your brother is alive. How far did you agonize about mm. all of that? Yeah.
1: It was really hard to This is why I think I didn't when my sister died. And as a journalist, so much of our experience is often filtered through the page, you know, through expressing it. So so it would have been um, natural for me to think that this is something I need to work through, you know, writing. But the reason I didn't think that straight away is because um, I, was, I would have agonised too much about revealing mm. the intimate early family life. And this is huge. It's one thing writing in your diary about your family, it's another thing writing with a view to, to giving your family stories over to the world because of course the minute you do that, um, the world is allowed, you are allowing the world to judge those family stories and judge your family. And I, at first I couldn't conceive of that. It was really when I spoke to my mother at first, she said, oh no, this is just, it would be very humiliating or painful and difficult um, for her and I didn't talk to my brother because I instinctively knew he's very private and mm. I don't think he would have appreciated being in the book at all and I'm really pleased he's a shadow in the book mm. um, also there's the thing to consider about my sister just because she's died doesn't mean she has no rights mm. about over her life that the most intimate parts of her life that I've decided should become public mm. in a book so I really uh, struggled with how I would write a book revealing so much about um, family life and, and about, you know, what is, as you say, uh, what counts as abuse, emotional and sometimes physical abuse. Um, I found it really hard to, to to decide to write that book because, and also, you know, with my father, for example, he, my father was a deeply loving, adorable father to me. And even though he was you know very a, a very harsh and unfair father to my sister for my, for her early the early part of her life i can't see him as an, a a bad father because he wasn't to me i, I it's a really difficult thing to write mm. because i adore and love him mm. and he did nothing but fill me with love and confidence mm. and there's a question around my mother and her bad marriage but also her decision not to leave the marriage which means my sister suffered abuse Mm. and there are these these difficult these really sharp edges of me wanting to judge my mother and father and I thought how am I going to get round this and I think I thought I'd write with honesty but also with love and I'd Mm. also write with equivocation
0: yes exactly yeah
1: because I think, you know, my father, as I say in the book, I don't want to go on about it too much, but was an aggressor. But he was also a victim. You know, he was trapped into a marriage. He was, passport was taken away. He was basically forced into a marriage when he was in love with a, an older German woman. He was forced to leave her, forced to marry someone much younger, i.e. Mm. my mother. Mm. Um, his his family kept secrets from my mother's family. So my bro- my father ended up in the wrong marriage and he didn't ask for it and he didn't want it. And there was a lot of cultural coercion there. It's not to forgive him at all, but it's to explain. Sometimes we hurt, how families hurt each other. And and it's to say, I think I'm putting everything in. What I hoped I'm doing was complicating um, the way I see fam. The, the the good and the bad characters in the family that they're complete they can be completely unfixed that no one is good or bad I did want to understand I wanted to understand how my father had ended up where he was how my sister you know became the really difficult and and tragic you know very sad um, and lonely person she she became and how did I become the person you know full of guilt but also um managing to actually we shared an eating disorder managing to function you know in the world with that disorder so i wanted to sort of understand the 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 way in which the family dynamic mm. and and the the trajectories um without a final judgment
0: well that's what that's what art does mm. isn't it art does not present a judgment and um it always amuses me when people say things like, well, or, or they try to, in, in, in the Instagram age, try to boil things down to a message. And you think, well, yeah. you know, it's not propaganda, it's art. Yeah. And art art doesn't have messages. That's why you can't go and give TED talks about, about you know, art, really. Yeah. <laughs> because Because that would be a distortion, really. Because all we can, I mean, essentially, all I want to say about everything now is it's extremely complicated yeah but here are some questions we might
1: ask yeah and and actually there might not even be lessons in here in in the really sad outcomes which there were there are in my book you know my my father has got dementia he's been in the wrong marriage for most of his life my my mother uh, is is disappointed in her life the shape of her life is not the shape she wanted to give it because her, because of this immensely um, destructive um, marriage that she was in. And, you know, my sister died and and uh, suffered a sort of paralysing depression eating disorder when she also lived beside this sort of great flaring talent.
0: I wanted to ask one of the things I was so shocked about when I read the book for the first time was um, obviously I knew you'd grown up on a council estate in in Primrose Hill but I didn't know about the squat where you lived in one room with two single beds with broken springs no heating no hot water a single tap which dripped brown water which your mother would boil so you could drink the water, one set of clothes that your mother would wash every night God, Christina,
1: I'm so impressed by how well you remembered this. (laughs) Well I looked it up again, (laughs) but you
0: forbidden even to look out of the window in case you were spotted I mean the shame, the secrecy the abject poverty What? and now you are in a world where, which is kind of theatre is famously middle class, theatre critics are generally upper middle class us white men you took over from michael billington who was not exactly brought up in a squat um tell me a bit about that tension and what effect do you think that early poverty has had on you and your attitude to money
1: yeah massive massive i don't think i'm really um got that across in the book the poverty that the shame the words some of the words you used and connection with the squat. I was there when I was five, um, five and a half to six. We stayed there for just over six months. And then we were given, we were found, we were discovered by the Camden Council. And we were given a, a council flat that was cold and empty for years because we couldn't afford to fill it. And my mum, my parents slept on cardboard while they bought us a bed. And then we finally got an oil heater. For many of those years, I mean, for all of those years, Poverty, sort of, it, it sort of attached ourselves. It sort of was like landed on our skin and then sunk beneath it, and then right into the bone. And I, I would say that the poverty, for for a lot, for, for a large part of my childhood. Was the thing that I felt othered me from the people around me. You know, we grew up in North, we grew up on a council estate, but it was a really smart one in North London, and we grew up in Primrose Hill, which is which was surround, which was very full of intellectuals then, but it but it also had a lot of wealth. I mean, it's it's got, it's conspicuous consumption, and it's it's just conspicuously you know full of billionaires now. But even then, <clears throat> it it was it was a really wealthy you know. Um, part of london our school had a lot of middle class you know children and this is one of the things that i think you know you said earlier that you hung out with a competitive crowd and i think i hung out with you know quite by accident but some really middle class girls and i sort of then started in a way uh, learning you know their interests and competing with Mm -hmm. them but just to come back to the poverty it um more than race, I felt that that was the thing that marked me, you know, and marked me out as different and mm. marked me out as an outsider in, 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 in London of the 70s and 80s. Mm. I felt really inadequate. We stepped out of poverty in the mid-80s when my grandfather, my mother's father, died. He was an immensely successful businessman. He had properties and commercial stuff and, you know, land that they then sold and shared between the four children and we got, you know, many thousands of pounds in the bank bank suddenly, and suddenly we could afford to eat out Mm. you know, we could afford clothes and I don't think my parents knew how to spend money, Mm. and and it was all a bit you know, and it was an odd time, they didn't know how to spend money they spent it on all the wrong things, because they hadn't had it Mm. and i think i've always had really you know i i couldn't believe when i started working and i could afford things um and i still in even in my 40s feel a kind of twitch inside about electricity and heating Mm. it's a funny thing where i there'll there'll be times you know even up to a few years ago where actually I was really really very grateful for central heating mm. but you know I've you know from my 20s onwards I was earning money and I and I was you know entering a world that where it was an, an entirely middle-class world from the age of 19 onwards from university and yet the the experience of poverty stayed as something you know that made me feel grateful for heating and lighting mm. and I've up to my 30s I would say I just felt very different and actually I, I think the shame of that time in the squat lodged somewhere inside me and I've just been carrying that shame uh, around but the odd thing about it all is that I also have real contempt for wealth I, I really do and I have a contempt for the wealthy which is a horrible thing to admit to um, and you know earning more money than i think that i need to spend is something that i i am you know objectively i'm very grateful for for my this incredible job which is about the experience more than the money um but i don't i'm not very imaginative imaginative with money and i don't think i have ever needed i've got a lot of amazing experiences through my job Mm -hmm. it allows you to have all these amazing experiences uh but as far as money's concerned i've never really known um what to do with it there's something gone a bit skewed you know skew with with me because of that early um early poverty i also know the baseline which is a great survivors thing is that if i lose everything if i lose the job actually i know that i'm capable of living in, with very little because mm-hmm. we did mm-hmm. and we were still able to encounter amazing literature yes. and amazing um stories so it wasn't a happy time and i would never wish that sort of family poverty on any any family and i don't think any family in in britain or anywhere in the world should have that um, because it causes such ugliness in a family, that level of fear and anxiety, uh, and imagine what my parents were going through. We were only children. we did realize we were poor at some point as mm. children, and I think I was hungry for some of my childhood mm. um and I realized being hungry, but I kind of thought that was a normal hunger that everybody felt. Mm but it doesn't it doesn't go away you know and i could have i think it's interesting when i've talked to other people who grew up in poverty who have been so anxious about money that they hoard you know that they they considered incredibly important and it dictates in a way some of their choices but um, because i think i knew that ultimately we had survived on very little that was my baseline for well i know i can survive that that's a low aim isn't it for life just merely to survive but survival is important in itself survival is extremely important in itself but it's very far from what you have done
0: in your career i mean to be chief theater critic of the guardian is a very influential position and one that bears a lot of responsibility a a a review in the guardian carries a lot of weight how do you carry that responsibility and can you tell us a bit about the rhythm of an average week?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's um yeah, I I'll tell you the rhythm of a an, uh, 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 an average week is um about four or five reviews every, you know a night. No, um uh, uh, oh, sorry, four week. or four or five reviews a week. Um Michael Billington used to do five reviews a week, you know, in his mid 80s and I take my hat off to him uh and, and he'd been doing it for as long as I'd been alive when I'd got the job. Um so I, you know, do four or five uh reviews a week. I go to theatres outside of London as well as, you know, the big and small theatres in London. Um it it is a huge responsibility and um I think there is this need to be kind and to please that I think is there because i'm a please i'm a pleaser i i being conditioned to be a, a diplomat and be pleasing as a woman. I realize that, but there's another part of me that thinks well actually I'm a critic and I'm not going to please and I'm really going to be the critic and some and I manage to be i I feel anguish afterwards when I've when I've given something a very poor star rating, which has, as you say, it can have very real um, effects on the market. You know, on the future of that play, on how many people buy the tickets. Um, so there's that. I feel tormented by the star rating. Um, but I'm you know what criticism is a thing in itself it shouldn't be connected to the market it's not my responsibility to help sell tickets or not help tickets and I I tell myself that and I tell myself that criticism is really about honesty and I think the world of theatre needs and wants it I don't think anybody putting on a production would want anything less than honesty. Mm. I think as long as it's not spiteful, as long as it's not sneering. Um I think it's an art you know, I want to be a I want in that in that very short window that I have in writing the thing up, in writing my six hundred word review or sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's shorter, I have this tiny window. You know, I'll get home maybe at eleven, if I'm you know, and and I'll sit down and I'll write, um until i'll probably write until midnight or twelve thirty, and then i'll get up very early and i'll finish it and i'll file it my job is over for that day by filing at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning and then it's all and then i build up to researching the thing i'll see that evening so it's a sort of rolling job it's got very a- un- odd on social hours but it's got fantastic you know you you've got a plus one you can take friends to it um you you get to really um express your taste because i think that's what criticism is it's not this you know you're not saying this is a good or bad play you're really saying i liked it or i didn't like it because of this you're really people who are reading your reviews every night uh, regularly are learning your tastes but hopefully it's not just saying this is my taste and i didn't like it but giving readers sort of a, a, an intelligent analysis of it of of what you've seen, so they can they can see that you didn't like it, but they can decide for themselves that actually this is the kind of thing that I might that that is interesting enough to go and see um and also I think what I'm trying to do in that small window of time for writing is to write them to make the writing you know as as beautiful and as sharp. As, as, as interesting, as funny as I can. Exactly,
0: exactly. Yeah. And it's so
1: interesting that from,
0: from a family in Lahore <laughs> that really valued art and education via poverty in London to have become someone who is a critic of art and whose criticism is itself and art and who has also written a book that is in my view a work of art is quite something Uh, anyway it's been fantastic to talk to you thank you so much Arifa. I've loved
1: it I've loved talking to you Christina thank you
0: thanks so much for listening if you like this conversation do subscribe to the art of work on apple spotify or any of the main podcast directories and do share rate it and leave a review for tips, wisdom and advice about The Art of Work, do follow at The Art of Work on Twitter or at theartofwork.co on Instagram, which is also the name of the website. And do
1: join me next week.